You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. It'd be really great to have your Bible, your Bible app still open and ready at Jeremiah chapter 7. There's also an outline in the back of the news that has the sermon points and you'll find those in English, Dinka, Korean and Simplified Chinese. So please make use of those if that's of help to you. Right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Merciful Lord, would you please help us this day? Help us to make you the locus of our trust, the object of our worship, and also the standard for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, what gives you a sense of security? Recent research in Australia suggests that the thing that gives Australians most a sense of security is achieving financial freedom and independence. Now, your answer might be different to that question, or you might need a little bit of time to really think about it and reflect on what really gives you a sense of security. And of course, I suspect our answer to that question would be very different if we were living in a different place in the world. But for Australians on the whole, the thing that we have bought into to provide a sense of assured stability and security is having a financial freedom and a supposed independence that goes along with that. Now, at one level, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? There's no doubt that resources can be a great blessing and we do need resources. A certain amount is needed. They can, of course, also be a great, great tool with which we can bless others. But I wonder if really it stacks up as the ultimate source or even a legitimate source of security. Now, I reckon you can test that pretty quickly. We could test that spiritually, so we could do that perhaps by considering Jesus' words, what he had to say to the rich young fool, so we could go that sort of angle. But let's not get the spiritual option at first. Let's just try to reason it through and test the premise for that security just with two questions. So the first question, the first test is, if financial freedom and independence is the ultimate source of security, does that mean that if you can't attain it, which could be for a whole bunch of reasons out of your control, that actually you've got no hope, that you've got to resolve at some deep level that you will never be secure. Now, that would be pretty sad, if true. That's the first test. The second test, the second question is, if financial freedom and independence is the ultimate source of security, does that mean that if you do attain it, then you've got to keep on living in some sort of constant state of anxious apprehension that you might lose it one day, and therefore you're going to devote everything you do your whole life to making sure that you never do? Now, neither of those outcomes sound particularly secure to me. See, I think the question ought not to be what gives us a sense of security, but a far more probing question of, is that security true or false? As Jeremiah is called by God to be a prophet to his people in the nations, they are living in turbulent times. They're living in the wake of the fall of the Assyrian Empire and they're living with the threat of the Babylonians knocking on their door. And into the mix of instability and vulnerability, God's people are grasping for security in all the wrong places. 
under pressure, they're, they're letting go of God and grasping, grabbing onto other things. In fact, I think if you were to really summarise the charges set against Israel so far, that which we see in chapters 1 through to 7 of Jeremiah, if we really tried to diagnose and dig into the heart of the problem, we would see that the problem is twofold. That there is both a turning away from God and a turning to something else. Or as, you know, the Lord puts it in Jeremiah chapter 2, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns which are broken. So what that is saying is that they have turned away from me, the very source and sustainer of life, and they have looked to other things, relying on their own strength, and dug false wells, wells that are ultimately empty. God, through Jeremiah, is saying, that's the situation you're in. And the Lord says that so comprehensive is this problem across all the people that the priests ask no questions, those who deal with the law know not the Lord, prophets prophesy but not by God, and no one is upright, not one. It's a comprehensive indictment. They're meant to be in a committed covenant relationship with God, but God says that their relationship with him is actually characterised by infidelity. And so the cry of Jeremiah over and over again, all that we've seen so far, is return to the Lord. If you return to me, says the Lord, I will cure you. If you reform your ways, says the Lord, I will let you live in this land. So these are hard words intended to cause soft hearts. That instead of building and shaping their lives on things that are false, that they would form and reshape, they would reform their lives on what is true, on the Lord. That they would reform their misplaced trust, their inauthentic living and their worthless worship. So first, God calls the people to reform their misplaced trust. Would you have a look at me, verse 1 of chapter 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and they proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So the Lord has sent Jeremiah to the temple gates really to deliver these very hard words. And it is both a prime and a precarious location. Prime because as people come in and out of the temple courtyard and the temple precinct, the gates are are like the squeeze point through which everyone must enter and also leave. It's a bit like when you go to vote, you know, all the campaigners are standing right at the gate, right? So it's the perfect place to be heard. That also means that it's precarious. It's precarious because the temple is at the very heart of their identity. And these words 
will not only be interpreted as scandalous, but potentially treacherous. And it's from these gays that these words of Jeremiah are going to go out with the hearers passing through. In fact, this is likely the very sermon that we read in Jeremiah chapter 26 that almost cost Jeremiah his life. It's like it's been brought forward in this book out of chronological order, in order the reader, in order that, that we would understand what really is at the heart of the problem. This is the issue, that instead of trusting in God as the source of their security, the people had developed this dodgy theology that the temple was the source of their security. They thought, as is evidenced in their lives, that they can worship what they want and do as they please, but because that the people of the temple, that they're fine, that they're untouchable. That's the thinking behind the words which it seems almost to become a mantra of their hearts. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God says, not only are those words wonky, but they are dangerously deceptive. They had misinterpreted previous promises as some sort of unconditional assurance that the temple and they would be protected no matter what, like some sort of lucky charm. They were too big to fail. The temple, in the words of one commentator, says, had become a refuge to flee to so that they could feel safe in their idolatry and their sin. You should pick up the really tragic irony here, that instead of God being the object of their trust, they trusted in the place that God had so kindly chosen to meet with them. It's really tragic. The, people, the, the temple was a good gift from God, but misplaced trust had transformed it into something else. Hence we read in verses 12 to 15, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. This is God saying, hey guys, do you remember Shiloh? Shiloh was a, a place that God had chosen to dwell with his people, yet by Jeremiah's time, it lay in ruin. God is warning them that if you do not turn back to me, then you could go the same way. I think it's really important to, to say that in the tragic, ongoing, unfolding events happening right now, in some of the very places that are mentioned in Jeremiah, it's really critical to say that you shouldn't take these texts of Jeremiah and then somehow try to use them as a word of explanation of what's happening now. Word of caution, please do not do that. Don't miss the context. Don't miss what Jeremiah is also saying to us. You might hear that chant, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and the temple of the Lord, and think, well, so happy we're not like that, aren't we? We know that this is just a building. I don't think I heard anyone today as they're walking in say, this is God's church, this is God's church, this is God's church. Everyone's safe, right? But I wonder, actually, 
What are the deceptive words that we are willing to listen to? Do not think for a moment that we are immune from ploughing our trust into false things. They could be spiritual, religious types of things, of course, like thinking so long as I say this prayer or go to church, then God will keep me safe or give me what I want. But of course, misplaced trust can be far more subtle and come in all sorts of forms. God says that not trusting in him is perilous, not because God is pernicious or some sort of attention hog, but because he's the only one worthy of our trust. He's the very source of life. Often I think that turning away from God and trusting other things can be really quite quiet and slow. I mean, quite quiet and slow of where we flee or where we stray. Two ways that might be helpful to try and surface where that misplaced trust might be buried at times is just to sort of reflect that if you ever catch yourself thinking or saying, well, if I do this, or if I get this, then I'll be okay. Or I will be okay because I do this, or because I have this. See, it's possible to have a misplaced trust in both the presence and promise of things. But that's like putting a condition on God, saying, well, if this happens, I'll trust in you. Or if so long you don't take that away, then I'll trust in you. I'll be okay. But God says to us, all of those things are counterfeit. They're false. But when you trust in me, that's when you can really delight in what's real and lasting, what's really secure. A security not bound to the things that we may lose, the things that we may attain, but a security found in the one who is eternal and has even given himself to us. Second, God calls the people to reform their inauthentic living, verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Now, calling this second point, I've labelled it inauthentic living. That's probably the biggest understatement I've had in quite a while. Uh, really, if you were to use the words of Jeremiah, it would say detestable living or wicked living. They're the words that God uses through Jeremiah to describe it. And you'll note that just in a few verses, depending upon how you count it, even before we get to idolatry, God says they're guilty of breaking more than half of the commandments. Misplaced trust spills out in idolatry, and we'll get to that in a moment, but also in rampant immorality and injustice. Throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll constantly see not only God's concern for the most vulnerable, for widows, for orphans, for the foreigner, but that also that God's people should share that concern. Note that God isn't saying to the people that their security is somehow dependent on their moral conduct. That's not what he's saying. But he's joining the dots of cause and effect between misplaced trust and disobedience. Saying that if you trusted in me, then you would be compelled to live differently. 
you would both listen and obey. That's the sentiment just a little further on in verse 22. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. So God is not dissing, okay, the sacrificial system that he set up, but he's saying, remember what came first, to listen and to obey. Carrying out all those rituals, but simultaneously disregarding God's commands is just empty religiosity. In Hebrew, in the original language, the the words used regularly for listen, obey, are actually the same word. They're not two separate words. We like to separate listen and obey into two different concepts, don't we? So we say, yes, I'll listen to you, and then maybe I'll obey. I don't think this is just a problem with kids, okay? This is a problem for adults too. We'll go, yeah, I'll listen to you, and then I'll decide if I'm going to obey. But here, the point is that listening to God means obeying God. I mean, if you think God is God, it'd be really nonsense to listen to God and disobey, wouldn't it? And when we do, it usually is a reflection that we're not really trusting God or we're trusting ourselves and our own desires more than what God desires. So this isn't God expecting his people to be perfect or sinless, obviously not. God made all sorts of provisions to account and deal with their sin. But not only does it seem that these people have little regard for God's commandments, but actually, as evidenced by their lives, they seem to be living in complete disregard for his commandments. So we must not make the same mistake that because we know we're forgiven that we think, well, I can just do whatever I please. If that was the case, that would indicate that we haven't really grasped forgiveness properly. That would indicate that we don't really trust in the goodness of God's ways. For the Israelites, obedience was not the cause of their relationship with God. They didn't have to earn the relationship with God. But it was the means by which God's gift of grace could be possessed and enjoyed. This really rules out the idea, in the words of Chris Wright, that, you know, once you have God's promise uh, tucked away, that that somehow means that it doesn't matter how you live. It just rules that out. Daily breaking the commandments and then claim protection when you show up at temple. I wonder what are the things in our culture that we might be willing to just go along with come to church on Sunday and they live however you want Monday to Saturday. Come to church on Sunday, dodgy business dealings during the week. Come to church on Sunday, promiscuity Monday to Saturday. Come to church on Sunday, mistreatment of the vulnerable all the other times. If you're a follower of Jesus, we can take great delight. There's nothing we can do that can separate us from the love of God. That's incredible. It means that when we make mistakes, we can confess and be assured of forgiveness. It means that our salvation is not dependent upon our performance, but on Jesus. But it also means that we are freed and empowered to live radical lives of obedience in response to Jesus' command to not only make and mature disciples, but to obey all that he commanded. You know, I wonder, what do you think helps more for us to keep on hanging on to Jesus? Disobedience or obedience? Finally, God calls the people to reform their worthless worship. 
as we uh, read through these verses, we really see that things had become so desperate. So verse 6, they follow other gods. Verse 9, they burn incense to Baal and other deities. They show up at the temple and they even put their own idols on display in the temple. And we read that not only has worship of fertility gods become a whole family activity, did you note that? So with the children gathering the wood, the, the fathers lighting the fire, the, the mothers making and kneading the dough, whole family fun activity. But later in the chapter, from verse 31 onwards, we see that some, it seems, had even been caught up in the practice of child sacrifice. And this is, this is abhorrent. So imagine coming home from church on a Sunday and then as you're gathering around the, the lunch table, the Sunday lunchtime activity is worshipping another god. Scarily, I suspect the rituals that we might teach are false things that we worship might be much harder to identify. Their idolatry had poisoned their hearts, disgraced the temple, infiltrated their families, harmed the vulnerable and led to unimaginable horrors. So not only was this sickening and abhorrent, but the worship, God says, is worthless. It's worthless because the things they worshipped were not real. Their ancestors, do you remember, they threw gold into the fire and out pops the golden calf that they worship? The Lord says, well, these people, they're actually even worse than their ancestors. That's why God's judgment will fall on them. You know, I think in Christianity today, we often talk about the danger of idols. We're saying, you know, be careful of idols, and we can think that we've got all that sorted, all tucked away. And we're probably aware that our idols, so in 21st century Toowoomba, our idols probably don't look the same as they did here in, in this context. I think we're really skilled to appreciate Kelvin style that the human heart is actually an idol factory. But my guess, my hunch is that we still actually do underestimate just how susceptible we might be to idols. When the Israelites waited for Moses to come down from the mountain, you might recall it took them a solid 30 days before they turned to worshipping something else. I wonder if we might be a bit quicker than that, that we might turn to things even faster than they did. There might be even times or contexts or situations when we kind of know that our hearts are more likely to click into idol manufacturing mode, where we can default to that. So you might just consider, uh, what are the conditions or those times in which you're, you're most likely to, to look away from God and be tempted to grasp onto other things? It, it can be when we're feeling unsatisfied or, or vulnerable, or actually it can be times when we have plenty. It just starts with a glance, becomes a linger, and then something else. When we don't find our security and contentment in God, then we can be quick to turn from what God has commanded and worship something else in his place. 600 years after Jeremiah, another prophet entered the temple courts. You might remember the scene. It's a pretty famous scene. We just heard it read from Matthew chapter 21. And as this prophet, Jesus, overturned the tables of the money changers he quoted these very words from Jeremiah. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And of course, his quarrel is, is, is not with the commerce, 
but that that is a symptom of a much bigger problem. This was a different temple, but a similar charge of a people who needed to reform their trust, their living, and their worship. But whilst Jesus' words are similar, he was also different. For he didn't come to declare judgment on the physical temple, but as the one who is the true and living temple, he would take that judgment on himself, that he would be destroyed on the cross and rise three days later to life. See, God found a way to take all of our sin and our shortcomings on himself, to take all of our failings in trust and living and worship, that he would pioneer a way through the very heart of sin and death, that he would make a way that we would be forgiven and be his people forever. When Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, he was talking about himself. He's no lucky charm. He is the saviour of the world. It's why our, our cry is not worthy is the temple or worthy is my goodness or worthy is my resources but worthy is the lamb. He invites us to find real security in him. That our trust will be fixed on him, that our worship would be focused in him and that our living would be in obedience to his words. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we just pray, Lord, please, as we hear these challenging words, would you help us in the power of your spirit to respond with soft hearts? Lord, we do pray that in your mercy and gently that you would shine a light in our hearts and really show us those false things that we can have a tendency to flee or to stray. Lord, would you please help us to delight in you and rejoice in you and then instead of looking to false things, that we would look to you, that we trust in you, that we live for you and obey you with our lives. Lord, may our whole lives be an act of worship of you alone. Lord, may we rejoice that we find a true and lasting security through your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.